4 through 10, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, and chapter 7, verses 11 through 21. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said, a man-child is conceived. Let this day be darkness. May God above not see it, or light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds settle upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, that thick darkness, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Yes, let the night be barren. Let no joyful cry be heard in it. Let those curse it who curse the sea. Those who are skilled to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. May it not see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide trouble from my eyes. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? But who can keep from speaking? See, you have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. You, your words have supported those who are, were stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and your, the integrity of your ways your hope? Think now, who, was ever, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Chapter 7, verses 11 through 21. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I am the sea, or am I the sea or the dragon that you set guard over me? When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that I would choose strangling and death rather than this body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for the days are a breath. What are human beings that you make so much of them, that you set your mind on them, visit them every morning, test them every moment? Will you not look away from me for a while? Let me alone while I swallow my spittle. If I sin, what do I do to if I if I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher over humanity? Why have you made me your target? Why have I become a, a burden to you? Why do you pardon my trans why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my, away my iniquity? For now I shall lie on the, in the earth, you will seek me, but I shall not be. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, that through your word for us this day we would grow in love and grace, grow to know and see you more in our lives. Amen. I invite you to take out your sermon notes today for those of you who are joining us online. There is a 
link to the sermon notes right in the uh, description of whatever platform you are joining us on, whether it is YouTube or our sermon audio feed. As I was uh, preparing for this sermon, my mind went to a book that I recently read. It was called Everything Happens for a Reason, written by Duke Divinity Professor Kate Bowler. And in it, she details her life in wrestling with being diagnosed and receiving treatment for stage 4 cancer. She talks about not just her journey, that is, the journey that she personally went on, but she talked also about how others interacted with her along this journey, how different people reacted to her journey or to her diagnosis, and how different people walked along the journey with her. And she highlights both the helpful and the unhelpful. And I couldn't help but thinking, as, think, as I read this book, that and I asked myself, why are we as humans so ineffective at handling the suffering of others, or, or really even our own? You see, as Bowler writes this book, she addresses these platitudes, these empty sayings that we often use as humans to mitigate, negate, diminish, or what have you, a person's suffering. Now, I want to be clear here, because to be fair, we often say these sayings with the best of intentions, right? We, we want the people to feel better, and so often we say these things to help them feel better. But sometimes, actually oftentimes, they are done without ever considering how they are received by the person. We often say them as a way to make the person feel better, but when push comes to shove, shove, it is more to make ourselves feel better or less uncomfortable in these situations. Because you see, it is no secret that as humans we are uncomfortable with suffering. And our response to this is, is not often to find true healing and suffering. No, our response often ends up diminishing, mitigating, negating the suffering of the person who is going through the bad time. Or it even may be our own suffering. And so we use these sayings, these platitudes, these, these colloquial sayings, to help people feel better. Let me, have you ever used these before? Everything happens for a reason. Or sometimes you'll say, well, at least, followed by something. How about this one for when someone passes away? God just needed another angel. Or maybe this one. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I heard that one on the soccer field a lot as a kid. You may have used one of these sayings. Hey, I've even used these sayings before in my life. I'm, I'm not here to chastise. I, I don't want to vilify anyone. But what I want us to do is like Job, that we ourselves grow as we encounter suffering. You see, that's the point behind this book that we are studying in this time. Job is a Jewish-Israelite story of encountering suffering. It shows us how we encounter suffering in our lives. And it teaches us how we can address 
suffering, both in our personal lives and in the lives of those around us. It expands our capacity for this. It expands our capacity to address suffering. And you see, these platitudes that we often say, they miss the point of suffering. They miss the point that we truly do grieve while we suffer. And it misses the point that, yes, grief is messy. And yes, it will feel uncomfortable. But you know what? It is healthy for our personal growth. Why? Because it helps us become expressive of our emotions. And in becoming more expressive of our emotions, it plays a role in growing our faith in God as well. In grief, we express our feelings. And we can do so in a very real way with God through prayer, but we will never get there if we are not led along that path. It can seem unhealthy, but it is in these real moments that we learn how faithful and loving God is. You see, suffering helps us understand and know our emotions. It's it's not that we look for opportunities to suffer. It's not that we enjoy suffering. We don't. I can't think of anybody who would say that. But when we are having bad times in our lives, the way that we come through suffering, the way that we heal from suffering is what helps us to become both better human beings and better Christians. And so we look at this book to Help us to understand how we address suffering in our lives and how we address suffering in other people's lives. And last week we opened this series, this series on the book of Job. We looked at the first section. Last week we read chapter 1, but this first section includes chapter 1 and 2. And we looked at this understanding, this underlying reasoning of our faith. And we asked an important question that the Hasatan, the Satan, the adversary, the, uh, the accuser figure in this book asks, right? And this figure, the Satan figure, asks God, when God brings up Job, he says, does Job love, does Job fear God for nothing, right? And it imposed in us this question that we ask ourselves. Do we love God because of what we perceive we get in return or because of who God is? Right? Because it's no mystery where Job thinks that he got his blessing from, right? Job, or, or the writer in Job points us to this understanding that Job in his life is giving to God, is sacrificing to God, has, that his faith is an embedded part in his life. And so it can be very easy for us to devolve this understanding that Job thinks he, because he is such a righteous, fear-loving fear uh, person of God, that his blessing comes from God. And so therefore, this same figure thinks, if I can take everything from Job, he will forsake his faith in God. Right? That's what... That's what the thing. But you see, this passage, this first section asks us, okay, why do we believe in God? We believe in God because we think that God is going to always bless us and we therefore are exempt from suffering. Or do we believe in God because we know the true nature of who God is? And therefore, when our life goes bad, because it will go bad because we are human after all, 
Are we going to remain faithful to God or are we going to forsake God? You see, if we treat God as someone who should bless us because we believe in God, then it can be very easy when our life takes a turn for the worse that we be like, okay, God, I'm out because I can't take this anymore. Or when life gets tough, do we turn to God? You see, unfortunately, the question, the answer, as we looked last week for many of us, is to forsake God's love. Because there's a lack of justification for the suffering of humanity. However, as we heard last week, when we find our faith, not seemingly in the good God gives us, but in God's nature, we find new meaning for suffering in our lives. It does not make the suffering good. Do not hear me like that. It does not make the suffering, the suffering good. But it helps us to find healing and reconciliation in suffering in our lives. And so we see in this Job figure, this manner of patience and level-headedness of faith as he is going through these terrible, awful days. And he is expressing his manner of faith and trials. And so this leads us away from this question that we heard last week and into what we are going to be looking at today, which is our response to suffering. We saw last week, in fact, Job's first response to suffering, right? It, the chapters 1 and 2 were this narrative. We hear how righteous Job is. Then we have this uh, interaction between God and Satan. And then we have Job's suffering. And we get the same thing in chapter 2. But at the end of chapter 1, we saw Job's first response to suffering, which was to cry out. We saw him rip his robe, but we did not see him curse God. And, and for us, this plays a role in establishing. I mean, it establishes really like, okay, what's the first thing that happens when we have a bad day? Well, there's something to be said for a good cry. But you know what? It goes so much further than that because grief is so much more than that. It extends far beyond ourselves. Right? It extends far beyond ourselves. And so while we see Job crying, what we are going to see today is that our response to suffering does not happen in the midst of a vacuum. It happens in the midst of community. And therefore, our ability, both as an individual and as a community, to not address suffering, to not address grief, can hinder our growth as individuals in community. It can hinder our ability to grow. It can hinder our ability to address suffering in the future, which can then even lead to systemic issues that cause generational pain to be felt. And so let's dive in here to this both his helpful and unhelpful help that Job gets. You see, we move into this next section, which extends from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 27. And what we have here is we start out in chapter 3 with Job's opening lament. And then we have this series of, of call and response from Job's three friends. You see, Job's friends, one of them will say something, and then Job will respond. And then another will say something, and Job will respond. Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, each one offering a different perspective. And you see, the, the interesting thing here is that Job's friends appear in this section to be very unhelpful. Very unhelpful. We encounter similar rhetoric from each one of them. And we see his friends trying to justify or find some explanation as to why Job is suffering. But you see, the funny thing is that Job's interactions with his friends starts off so promisingly. Here's the helpful help. That Job's friends offered him. Because in chapter 2, verse 13, we read, and this is his friends, Job is, has suffered. Job has had all of these terrible things happen in these first two chapters. 
And, and Job's wife is, in, uh, right before this passage, Job's wife is saying, well, just forsake God, just, just or, or admit that you've done the right. Job's wife is trying to convince him to do something here. And then Job's friends arrive on the scene, and this is what we read that they do. It says, they sat on the, with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word. For seven days and seven nights they sat. In silence, y'all, I, 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 30 minutes of silence and I'm going psychotically crazy. But seven days and seven nights, and, and do you want to know why they did that? We just finished that sentence. For they saw that his suffering was great. Right? <laughs> they saw that his suffering was great. Very great. I mean, this indicates one of the greatest things we can do in the midst of those suffering around us. So silence can be so, so healing. Silence can be so healing for those who are grieving because it is merely the presence that is around us that can help us to know and understand how much we are loved. As Job continues to lose everything in chapter 2, his friends surround him and they just sit with him. At this very moment, surrounding and comforting him. And you know what? This could have been great healing. Had they continued to find these ways of comforting him and lifting him towards God. But it is when they start talking and begin to attempt to make Job feel better, that we begin to see the unhelpful help that they come to offer. Because Job's friends have plenty of platitudes, plenty of long-winded expositions about God, but they never encourage, nor do they themselves speak to God on behalf of their friend Job. And we see this right here in the scripture that we read this morning. This is the first speech by Eliphaz, and I just pulled a portion of it out here, where Eliphaz says in verses 7 through 9, they think now, this is Eliphaz talking to Job, think now, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Now this when we look at these kinds of responses, is where it becomes important to recognize the nature in which we talk about something. Because you see, the nature in which we talk about suffering often looks a lot like the nature in which Job's friends talk to him about what he is going through. You see, Job's friends are quick to blame Job, as if Job did something evil or wrong in the eyes of God, and that in that understanding that God is now punishing Job for his wrongdoings. I'm sure we can even recognize one of the things that we will often say to someone who is going through a rough time, especially if we think it might be their fault. Right? Eliphaz is essentially saying, well, you reap what you sow. Friends, how in any way, how in any way is this helpful for someone who is suffering? I mean, whether you think it's their fault or not, how in any way does this bring a sense of healing and reconciliation to a person who is going through probably some of the worst 
most traumatic, most painful experiences of their life. You see, friends, we do not bring healing by blaming someone for everything that goes wrong in their lives. We do not bring healing by shrugging off a person's suffering or mitigating or negating it in any way. We do not bring healing by blaming the only deity that can offer them true reconciliation. Yes, God weeps when we make mistakes. Yes, God cries when something does not happen according to the good order of the world. But you know what? We read over and over and over again in Scripture. Is that God cares more about being in relationship with us than God does with punishing us. God cares more about being in relationship with us than punishing us. And so how, how in sitting with someone can you even begin to think that the reconciliation process, the healing process that happens through God can begin if you're saying that God is somehow punishing you if you're somehow saying that the suffering that they're going through is their own fault, whether it is or not, the way we respond to suffering in our lives and in the lives of those around us is what begins the process of healing and reconciliation. I mean, I imagine how much shorter of a book we would have gotten rid of 24 chapters of dialogue had Job's friends sat with, continued to sit with him in silence, maybe even offered a few empathetic words that sought healing, and guided Job towards God. Instead of trying to get Job to either uh, lay claim to something that he had done wrong, or to begin to blame God, as if God is somehow trying to punish Job. I mean, we can say, yes, Job's friends had good intentions for what they were saying. They wanted to help Job feel better. They wanted to help Job get out of this funk. But they sought to do it in a way that almost damaged Job's relationship with God. And in a way, they sought for Job to forsake his relationship, to even curse God at some points. This is what we see happening in chapters 4 through 26. And so it begs the question of us, how do we respond to suffering? How do we respond to suffering, whether it's our own lives or whether it's the lives of those around us? And the first and one of the greatest things that I can encourage us to do as Christians is to learn this process of lament. We need to learn how to lament. And what lament is, lament is a form of grieving prayer. Anybody take a look at Job 3, look at Job 3, that's Job's opening lament, and many of the responses to many of his friends are laments. If you need help knowing and understanding what a lament looks like, you can talk to me and I will offer you some laments from Scripture, or uh, you can also Google Psalms of Lament and you will see the way in which these are a form of grieving prayer. But they are not just any kind of grieving prayer. They are grieving prayer that is so filled with emotion. They're filled with any and every kind of emotion that we let out when we are grieving. Yes, sadness, but also Yes, anger, frustration, pity, both upon ourselves and upon others. This is our crying out to God. Why, God? Why? Why is this happening to me? What is going on? This is such a bad 
day. And yes, it can even be a cry out as feeling lonely and empty in our lives. But you know what it always does is in lament, we cry out to God. Right? And we give God everything, right? My therapist always says, better out than in when it comes to talking about our pains. If we can vocalize the pains that we are feeling, and there is a deity, there is a God out there that is listening to us. And it is always done in a way that speaks to God. We, we do not curse God, right? We do not curse God. We do not forsake God. We do not turn away from God. But we speak to God. We let God know our pains. We let God know our angers. We let God know our frustration. We let it all out. Because in the midst of that, in the midst of that, we begin this process of healing. And as we ourselves learn how to lament, we ourselves can bring this into a better understanding of community. And we can help bring a sense of healing in the name of God as well. You know, we're going to get to God's nature and presence and suffering in our lives, but it is our responsibility and how we talk about God, talk to God, and not about God when we are suffering that begins to define this healing process. We sit with folks, or, or we seek to sit with folks, and as we do so, we ourselves lament. We lament for ourselves and we lament for these other people. And therefore, when we sit with folks, we do so in a manner known as empathy. Now, I'm sure many of us have experience with this understanding of sympathy. And while sympathy may seem helpful, right, we can be sympathetic to something, but sympathy often negates or mitigates. It, it, it's when those platitudes I mentioned at the beginning come into play. When we try to explain away moments of suffering that miss the true nature of grief present. Sympathy can also make something into a competition and can diminish what a person is feeling. But empathy. Empathy is a more present and real form of presence that can help to lead to healing. Right? Empathy doesn't need words. And even, even the words that are used when we are being empathetic with people are about presence, right? We sit with someone, and when we hear their story, it is not responding and saying, well, at least, or, or so-and-so, or this happened to me, right? We just sit with them, we hear their story, and we say, gosh, that sucks. Or maybe we, we reiterate their pain, right? Oh, man, it sounds like you had a bad day. Tell me about it. In empathy, we seek to understand a person's pain without trying to help them, without trying to solve their problem. But you know what we do? We get into that pit of despair with them, right? We get into that comfortable place, right? They're uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable. And in that uncomfortability, healing can take place. We're not giving them a shoulder to cry on. We are crying right alongside them. And this is the opportunity that Job's friends miss. When they spend those seven days in silence with Job, this is the opportunity because when they open their mouth, when they finally have a time to express something to Job, they try to fix him. Instead of letting God help to heal. Instead of leading Job to God, they try to help fix him. This is the unhelpful help that's all around us. And friends, it's not because we don't know how to suffer. No, we as humans are great at suffering. 
We as humans have perfected suffering over several centuries and eons of suffering. No, friends, what we are is we are uncomfortable with suffering for some odd reason. We are uncomfortable with our suffering, and so we never truly process through our suffering and through our grief in a healthy way. And then, because we are uncomfortable suffering, because we think that when we suffer, we have to get out of it as quickly as possible, we think the suffering of other people is uncomfortable as well. And so this makes other people's suffering uncomfortable for us, for us to sit with, which means we say whatever it takes to cheer them up quickly. Well, friends, here, hear this today. Even in the midst of suffering, even in suffering, happiness is possible again. But, big old but here, we must do it in ways that constructively build our faith and lead us towards God, lest it destroys our faith in the process of trying to find healing. Right, Catherine Schiffendecker, who has been guiding this series as I have been writing and discerning it, says that Job's laments give us permission to lament, to bring our deepest hurts, fears, and anger to God in prayer, to know that God hears. Our response is as important as God's response because it begins the healing process. If we cannot point ourselves to or we cannot help point others to God, then how can we ever help or expect people to find true reconciliation? How? How are we ever supposed to help others be guided to God to find reconciliation? Because, friends, in suffering, it will be God's presence that gets us through. Not any quick platitude, not any colloquial sayings. It will be empathy that allows us to process our thoughts and feelings, that welcomes and invites God into the process instead of blaming him. And so let's heal with our eyes on the loving nature of God. Amen.